3: welcome to new granada where people come to escape city life it has safe streets clean air good schools it's a perfectly planned community but something strange is happening something that wasn't part of the plan seems to me like you all were in such a hopped up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from something that could drive this town over the edge. You are to take these home to your parents. is to let them know about a special emergency meeting to discuss the problems about you people. A kid who tells on
4: another
3: kid. It's a dead kid. I don't know how many of us are willing to admit just how deep in trouble some of the kids in the city are. Tension is rising. You people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals. Tempers are raging. Your son and some of his friends are
1: part of this. My son and his friends are part of this town.
3: Time is running out. And something's got to explode. They've got guns!
2: Keep going. Oh! I can assure you everything is under control.
3: They were old enough to know better, but too young to care. And now this town is over the edge.
0: This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Um. So, so do you associate werewolves with drinking now, or drinking with werewolves?
2: I think we all always associated werewolves with drinking. right? Absolutely, I mean, and, and yeah. anything else licentious. Like
0: <laughs> yes. Well, I, I did see a werewolf drinking up. I can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Trader But, um, well, let's 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 do this, man. Because we're. Um, uh, I'm, so I'm pretty sure that Tim Joe we can't I'm,
2: see him, but he can see us.
0: Yeah. I'm still waiting for the day when someone comes on claims to be a, a high profile guest and then we release the show and then they,
2: you know, he's an
0: come sue us. Cause yeah. Adam McKay here going, you know, I love Donald Trump. I can't wait for him. To... <laughs> really interesting. Another freaking very exciting. We're coming back. We've been away for a couple of weeks. It's our first episode of the new year. Um, we, we wanted to get uh, a big guest. Um, and, uh, uh, we had to, we had to settle for the uh, writer and director of, I believe the biggest hit of the year so far. So not exactly what we hope, but we'll, we'll get by some, um, holy shit, Adam, congratulations, man. That's, um, your movies, uh, quite a success.
1: It's crazy. Yeah. The whole experience of making the movie, you know, writing the movie, making the movie, releasing the movie has just been. One of the most insane roller coasters I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, we've all been through it, let's face it. So, I mean, it's just from my little sweaty corner of the world, it's been uniquely crazy filming during a pandemic, pre vaccine, uh, you know, having to shut down, having to go back up, releasing the movie. Um, uh, you know, having this crazy divided uh, 50-50 critical response, uh, but then having this insane worldwide response—literally hun- hundreds of millions of people, two hundred million people is, is one estimate I've seen—and uh, it's still going up. It could be three hundred million by the time it's done. And then seeing the movie like take off in countries like Brazil and Nigeria, and my sister lives in Uruguay, and it was number one there and Vietnam and. It's just been uh, one of the craziest things I've seen. And then seeing climate scientists in tears, like finally someone gets it. And <laughs> and then and then also, you know, one of the cool things I don't see anyone talking about is, you know, it's not, it, the movie doesn't adhere to one genre, but it's mostly a comedy. And to see a movie be number one in 87, different countries on all the major uh, inhabited continents, uh, has really been crazy. I've never had that experience. You guys know, comedy usually plays
0: uh, yeah, to locally. a very yeah. But this is color. different. This,
2: this is the, the, the things in this movie are specific to everybody who sees it. Uh, you yeah. Know, it, it, there's nobody who doesn't think about this stuff.
4: Yeah, that's the real.
1: That's the universal experience that we went for. Was are you freaking out about the world? Then you might get a laugh out of this. <laughs> uh.
2: and, and the and the other the other thing that the question that pops up is is does this mean that television is as terrible in other countries as they as it is in your movie <laughs> you know what <laughs> it's So funny because we're doing a project with uh, bong Jun Ho we're adapting
1: parasite into a mini series for hBO and he saw don't look up and loved it. it was very complimentary and he said, you know you're gonna have a giant worldwide hit on your hands and I was like, well you know director bong, what do you mean it's it's still a comedy. It's still American centric. It's still and he's like, no, he's like, I don't think you understand. Every country is experiencing this. Every country is you know being run over by big dirty money. Every country's political situation is weird. Every country clearly is dealing with climate. And uh he was right. He was right. I just talked to him the other day. I was like, wow, you saw that one coming. That's amazing. Um, well, yeah. it's also,
0: you know, one of the things I love about it too, just just as a movie. Um is, you know, you've been sort of going on this creative journey in the last few years and kind of finding these different voices, if you will. And this movie is such a combination of all of them. You know, it's, it's I mean, there's it's got, you know, kind of, there are scenes that have a Talladega Nights vibe almost. Then you have some of your kind of vice and big short kind of vibe in there. And then there's also this, and I mean, talking as though anybody listening hasn't seen it yet, there's some incredibly moving, emotional, Scenes in that movie, the the, la, the really Last cool.
2: Supper scene at the end. Oh of the my movie god! Is very is very emotional. Yeah. I, mean, I was I was surprised how moved I was by it, considering how broad the rest of the picture. is. Yeah,
1: yeah it, it really it, it's all come from just you know since the financial collapse, this just feeling that millions and millions of us have had that we're not living in the same world anymore, and the whole idea was. I don't think we like the one genre approach to filmmaking covers the way the world feels. So we, you know, pretty aggressively started blending, you know, whether it was with the movies like big short and vice and this one, or with shows we've done like succession or even the docu series Q into the storm, uh, which has parts that are very funny, parts that are very disturbing. I just think that's the way it feels now. I think depending on what part of your day in, you're laughing uh, or you're horrified, or you're shocked. I, you know, I just found out today they canceled our home insurance uh, because they're no longer going to be insuring homes in Southern California against fire and flood. And I, I laughed, quite frankly, because it's just getting preposterous. And my wife kind of rolled her eyes, like, "Oh, great, that's the last bit of fuel to your fire you needed." <laughs> and so it's it's uh, you know it's so preposterous. I mean if you told me the instrument of the demise of American democracy would be the host of the apprentice and the former owner of the Washington Generals I wouldn't just I mean it's so off the rails of anything you would write it. it's literally like saying like Kermit the frog is a serial killer like it it, it just doesn't even cognitively rest in our brains so
0: no it's true so, and when you put it like that because I mean, the one thing you know I saw the film early and Loved it. And literally, my only uh, question was like, is this because I love movies with tonal shifts. In fact, I think the day I saw it, we um, uh, we had just had a guest on who came on and talked about his favorite movies with tonal shifts in them. And, you know, the sort of common wisdom is like American audiences don't go for that. They like they like their comedy comedy, like their drama, you know, their drama dramatic. And that was my only thing I thought that might impede the success of this movie is it's got such radical tonal shifts.
2: I mean, we worked. Yeah, that's what's re- great about it. I mean, that's, yeah, no, absolutely. But I most like about
0: it. absolutely. But that being historically, I kind of think that audiences in America are like, yeah, and they're just yeah, it worked
2: for Vice and it worked for The Big Short. You know, yeah. not, not that they were as successful as this picture is.
1: I mean, the big the, the big
2: one i think we've taken knocks on with
1: the last couple movies is just nakedly saying what's going on right. and I, it honestly never occurred to me till some of the responses device and we got a lot of great responses device but some of the criticisms were about the ending you know being so naked and just you know to use their words on the nose where we show the collapse of america and first off never occurred to me that anyone didn't wasn't aware that America's falling apart. Uh, it surprised me to think some people thought that was hyperbolic. And then the second thing is like man, I I feel like it's a relief when you live in a society that never talks about, you know, noses with, with everything in our media avoids ever mentioning noses and you can't, no, no, we mentioned wrists, we mentioned kneecaps, we mentioned calves, that when you get on the nose, I feel like I can breathe at that point. But but I also think like that that kind of criticism and debate is also really great because we are living in such a fractured time. And I, I think it's just most important that you get strong responses that you have people having emotional reactions. So I I couldn't be happier with with Don't Look Up, including the divided 50-50 response from the critics. They're talking about it. Yeah, the anger, the love. This is a movie you
0: want people to talk about. Yeah, Uh, it's uh, really
1: been, and most of all, the the audience's response has just been overwhelming. And I would say even kind of moving, it was really kind of beautiful to read some of those responses. But I also feel like I, I told you, that uh, I was a little bit fanboying out that we're here with Joe Dante. I mean, I because I feel like you do that in your movies. Well, I feel I like you when they let me make them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Gremlins is a great example of a movie that's funny. It's a horror film. It's a slice of life. It's a comment on Americana. And uh, I've always felt like horror is able to do that of the genres a little easier than the rest. I mean, comedy, not as much because by you know legal mandate you have to have that happy ending. But with horror you just have a lot more freedom. And I feel like you're one of the masters uh who's done that. So oh, that's
2: very that's yeah. very nice of you. I have but to I, fanboy
1: out for one I, second. Well no, no, no let me
2: fanboy back. I mean I I, <laughs> I like uh I have liked uh, you know your last three pictures really uh, really a lot and um and particularly the tonal shifts and particularly the fact that the that the fourth wall is broken, which is something that I like to do yeah. to the detriment of my employers <laughs> uh, uh, you can't do that can not you can't, they'll, they'll, you, you, can't you can't remind them they're watching a movie <laughs> they know they're watching a movie they paid to see it anyway uh, I just you know I I, I was I was really kind of knocked knocked out by the movie which reminded me a little of a movie that I made called the second Civil War yeah. which was a similar kind of you know, a uh, broad version of what might happen. And that was 1997 and almost everything in that movie has already taken place.
0: And, wow. and by the way, that, that movie almost plays like a historical drama now compared to
1: the, um, <laughs> the well, we were talking about, also featuring Ron Perlman. Oh, uh, yeah. anything Ron Perlman's in, I love. We were talking about the movie Network. Uh, because they're going to do a uh, double bill at the Paris in New York, which I was thrilled by uh, of Network and Don't Look Up. Oh, nice. And and I don't know if I've ever seen a movie go through, like almost almost like a living creature, what Network started as, the way it was seen in the 80s and 90s, and what it is now. It's almost like three completely different movies. You have the sharp, absurdist satire that it initially was, and then in the 80s, it almost became a, a biting social drama critique. And then now it's like, I don't even know what it is now.
0: No, it's no. Like, it's I, what you show your kids when you want to explain <laughs> what happened, what happened to media. <laughs> yeah, and,
2: and any, any movie with <laughs> Ned Beatty's speech in it, obviously, is oh, going oh, to last forever. Oh,
1: the best, the best. Well, it's, <laughs> it's maybe my all time favorite movie. I, I have a Japanese poster of network in my office. Actually, I, I bow down to that movie. It's just yeah. amazing.
0: It, it is. And that, I guess that was one you wanted to talk to us about, which uh, I'd love to get into the, start doing our thing. Cause we, we, we refuse to talk to our guests about their work. Um, so we're going to cut all, we're going to cut the first 10 minutes. Don't worry. It, it won't be in the show, Adam. No, no mention of your your little film or whatever it is. But um, yeah. Cause I, it, it's funny. Cause we were going back and forth about what to discuss and, and you put network that work and, and my first thought was like, uh, well, you know, if we're trying to winnow it down. That one comes up a lot. But the point is to get people's personal perspectives on things. And I can't think of another movie I would more want to talk to you about right now in the context of Don't Look Up. So yeah, that's, that's kind of perfect that they're showing that double feature. Do you, um, do you remember the first time you saw it?
1: Yeah, know it, it was one of those movies that would be on, that grownups would talk about. So mm-hmm. I grew up, I'm 53 years old. So I grew up in the 70s. I'm on the dividing line between the 70s and 80s. I remember both times. And uh, so, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up where we had a social safety net. We were poor, but it's okay. We had food stamps and my mom was a single mom, but my public school was good. And I went to college, but it was only $800 a semester because it was Temple University, which was state subsidized. And then I got to- Have we, did I,
0: I got to start researching our, that's where I went. You went to Temple? I went to Temple.
1: Oh my God. Wow! I was there when our basketball team was number one in the nation with Mark Macon. He sat next to me in my psych class, and uh, right before they lost to Duke, I remember seeing them. But uh, yeah, I went to Temple. I grew up outside Philly, and uh, and so Network was a really interesting movie because it was the movie that grown ups watched in the seventies. That's the only way I knew it. Then in the eighties, as I got more and more into movies, I watched it, and. It, and by that time the media had already been started it, it already started to be dismantled as we see right. brilliantly in broadcast news and where it was folded into the entertainment division uh, of all that you know it used to be a public service. That's the way mm-hmm. the news was portrayed and that's the way it was framed and it wasn't for profit it was for good journalism and the good of democracy and then uh, all the networks folded it into the entertainment division. So I remember seeing that transition happen. And watching uh, a network and being like, oh, this is there were a lot of cautionary movies about be careful, like, you know, the Neil Postman book, you'll entertain yourself to death. Um, But but that was one of the best ones. And it was the I'm mad as hell uh, and I'm not going to take it anymore. was was like a meme before memes. You heard it said a lot, but it wasn't really until. Uh, a college that I watched it and fully got what it was doing. And by then I was studying film and watching everything. And then I got the full historic context for it, when it was coming out, how it was made, how brilliant the script was, started understanding the people involved in making it. And then it became one of my favorite movies. All of a sudden it went on that list. Um, and then I started watching other movies through the lens of network. So there's a movie you don't hear talked about much anymore that I really think is brilliant to die for starring, uh, yeah. uh yeah. Nicole Kidman Nicole Newman, written yes. by Buck Henry. And so I would watch a movie like that. And suddenly I was seeing that movie through the lens of network. And then as the years have rolled by, I realized, Oh, I'm watching like, one out of every six movies through the lens of network, uh, including broadcast news, which is another one that's an all time favorite. I think it's a masterpiece and uh, and talk about blending uh, genres. you know, it's a romantic story, it's funny, it's a tragedy. Um, so yeah, network network is way high on the mountain. It's a looming movie that casts a big giant shadow. Over not only everything I do, but everything everyone does, whether they're even aware of it or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's you can't get into that particular arena and not be familiar with it. Um, you kind of have to have to bow down before it. And I was wondering, have you ever seen his? Um, uh, it was also interesting to me to see the hospital, which Chayesky did right before that. Have you ever oh, seen?
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, because it's it's
0: you can sort of feel him ramping up to that network rage. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I
1: feel like the hospital is almost in a way a precursor to uh, the wire. Mm. Uh, I wonder if Simon I, Simon I, I've never met him before. He's such a uh, funny, interesting question. His yeah. kind of H.L. Mencken kind of presence on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, without the you know racism and all that <laughs> stuff. But, but H.L. Mencken's now a complicated guy. But um, uh but yeah i wonder if he was influenced because man it's so good yeah brilliant
0: yeah yeah because it yeah, the way it taps into the sort of local community that's all sort of happening at the edges is uh, that's a, i've never even thought about that
1: way that's great um
0: yeah so that's a
1: big one that's that's yeah. like you know that's if you're making the bronze statues in your life that you're going to put in front of your own personal libraries and in your own personal uh you know Municipal uh, squares that would network with, boy, that was a bizarre analogy I just did. Suddenly my internal life became a uh, (laughs) city that I'm building statues in. But anyway, network would get one for sure. Big, 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 big movie. I'm in awe of it. It's one of the most prophetic films ever made eerily prophetic, freakishly prophetic. And then, you know, movies uh, tend to be very prophetic. Uh, You know, another one I love that's a a, a cousin of of it is Ace in the Hole uh, Mm -hmm. with Kirk Douglas is just a fabulous movie. And talk about punching you right in the teeth. I mean, that's the thing I loved about those movies from that period in the 60s and 70s, where they still the most part made movies like this because you just don't see them as much anymore it's hard to get financing for them these movies were very aggressive they would punch you in the teeth i mean he's in the hole people forget how silly and and aggressive Dr. Strangelove is, network. I mean, network is aggressive. I mean, you know, the guy's yelling out the window, I'm mad as hell. The executive, you know, sleeping sleeping with people for the ratings.
2: Um, Well, what's really aggressive is at the end of the movie when they kill him, how everybody acquiesces and talks about (laughs) it like it's just a normal (laughs) thing. It's like, we're going to, you know, we're just going to paint his lawn red, you know, and, <laughs> they, it's, and, and, and well, I guess we'll just have to kill him. And oh, it's, not, it's not a shock to anybody. It's just, of course, that's a, that's an option. You know, yeah,
1: it's a business decision. It's kind of like what happened to Howard Dean, which is yeah. always a story yeah. I feel like is downplayed that two days before his, the yell, uh, as it was called, uh, Howard Dean had floated the idea of re-regulating the media and maybe bringing back the fairness doctrine. And British, lo and behold, yeah. two days later, he does yeah. a screen that's a little odd. I it's mean, mixed you know, a little oddly. Yeah, and <laughs> oh my God! I mean, I'm not. I don't. I have no proof that it's on purpose. I'm just saying the timing was a little strange because he was the first candidate to float the idea of re-regulating the media, maybe ever. And oh, uh, yeah. yeah, it was. Came,
0: imagine like that wouldn't have had any
1: effect if it happened now. Oh, the yell? Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends. If you uh, walk- after after Trump? I, I yeah, post-Trump.
0: Like I'm not sure what you could do.
1: Ah, I mean, yeah, the days of falling on your sword are definitely over the days of, like, Al Franken resigning for the good of the democracy. Like, yeah. I think everyone realizes that doesn't really play. But, yeah, the yell, the only knock on the Howard Dean yell would now be that it wasn't strange enough. That, you know, <laughs> that maybe he could have thrown in... Uh, a curse word, or made it even yes. more high pitched. Uh, yeah,
0: a tiradic outburst of profanity. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jesus Christ.
0: Oh man, what uh, what else did you
1: uh, come in with? What else? Uh, well, with? a movie that's a big one for me. And if you're really talking about the movies that made you, yeah. I go back to those ones you really watched when you were a kid, when formative years. And a big one for me was a movie called Over the Edge. Yes. Um, and yeah. like Jonathan D- Kaplan directed that. Movie. Jonathan Kaplan did a brilliant job. And yep. Tim Hunter, the great Tim Hunter, wrote that script, co-wrote that script. And it's also Matt Dillon's first movie. Yeah. He was literally plucked off a playground uh, around Larchmont and Maronick, where Fourteen. Four, four, 14 years old, where coincidentally my cousins used to live. Uh, uh, Scott, Letty, Jeff, Letty, uh, their whole family, Kira, Amy. And I used to spend summers there, so the story of Matt Dillon being plucked off the playground was a huge deal. But the reason that movie was important to me was that that movie, uh, first off, was kind of like my life. I mean, we were all kids in a town with poor city planning. Running around, we weren't as bad as the kids in the movie, but we were throwing tomatoes at cars, ringing doorbells, crank phone calls, you know, uh, uh, shoplifting baseball cards, you know, uh, and we were kind of these filthy pack of kids running around the town with no supervision, and then this movie comes out and the music slams. It's like
0: oh God, yeah, it's... Van
1: Halen before Jump, back when Van Halen really had that edge. And it's the cars when they were using the power cords and there's parties in basements, uh, you know, house parties in basements with teenage kids, with kegs smoking, and this was how we were living. And But most of all, the movie came out and it started running, I think on HBO and it started causing riots. There started being kids trashing schools and rising up. And the movie had to be pulled from being aired. But Joe, I don't know if you remember this, but it caused quite a storm. There was another movie at the time, The Warriors, that did the same thing right. where people started. And I had never felt a movie to that point in my life where the movie felt like it was next to me when I was watching it. The movie felt like it was someone that I knew. It felt like it was a, a person in my life and from then on, I've just always been drawn to movies that feel like they're talking directly to you. That feel mm-hmm. like they're you can feel a warm body next to you. Have and you have you watched it recently, Adam? I I I, I watched it about six months ago. Oh, okay. You know okay, yeah, because it holds, it holds up, up right? beautifully. Well, Kaplan's filmmaking, it is really good. And he did a genius thing in that movie because you've got this slamming power chord, 70s diegetic music in the movie. But whenever he uses score, he uses this mournful uh, clarinet that's really beautiful. And it's almost this like chamber orchestral score that then provides this kind of tragic mournful distance on the movie. And the cinematography is gorgeous. There's a shot of all the kids going back home after hanging out an abandoned by the way the themes of the movie play exactly now they hang out in an abandoned half-built home in a in a development that lost its financing i mean it sounds like something you could see absolutely in this day and age and and they're playing around with a gun they stole from someone's apartment and there's a police shooting i mean all the themes there's drug use there's nihilism uh the youth has no direction uh they're being vilified by you know developers i mean Every single note that it hits um, uh, feels uh, resonant to
0: It's There's a new Arrow Blu-ray of it that I watched just a little while ago, and it looks amazing. And the thing that really knocked me out, and I watched it with a bunch of friends who were younger, they were loving it. And um, it's such a, if you were making that movie today, uh, or if you're making any kind of period piece, I would say go back and watch this film, because there's so many period details that are there, because obviously it was shot at the time. But it, it, there's a, there's a, I can't even describe it. It's like when they have a poster, if they have a Kiss poster on the wall, it's not the Kiss poster that you would get at a prop shop today. Yep, it's the yep. actual Kiss poster you had back in 1979. Yep. You know, and it's like, those details are incredible. And yeah, I'd forgotten the music too. And they, well, they, they was,
2: is, you know, it's, it, the music is by his father, uh, Saul Kaplan. That's who right. Was That's right. Uh, who was blacklisted. We did a lot of pictures in the fifties before he got blacklisted and uh, was a, a terrific composer.
1: It's the score is beautiful. Oh my God. And the cinematography, like what's great about it is, you know, you would see a movie like that. And this maybe goes back to what we were talking about with blending genres, but you know, there's a movie later that Tim Hunter directed called river's edge, which I would also put on this list. That was another movie that was just, I worked at the Ritz five in Philadelphia. Yeah. I was an usher and I thought, Oh, this will be the greatest job ever. I'll, I'll watch art films. I'll meet cool uh, art school girls that I'll date. And then I showed up, and they're like, "All right, go clean the bathroom." And <laughs> uh-huh. it turned out I was mostly a janitor who occasionally oh. took tickets. But River's Edge played at the Ritz Five, and uh, that's a movie that's got a hard-driving single tone. You know, it's that mm-hmm. it's that really hard heavy metal. It's got a very strong cinematic look to it, kind of saturated. Uh, it's even way more nihilistic than uh, Over the Edge. Uh, incredible movie for anyone who hasn't seen it, but very disturbing. And But what Kaplan did in Over the Edge that I love is he blends tones because there is this nihilistic, you know, uh, over the edge kind of tone, but then... He, He steps back with the orchestral music. The cinematography becomes much more classic, like something almost out of a George Stevens movie. And and all of a sudden there is, or out of a giant, or all of a sudden there's this reflective classical look, and then it'll snap back to a little more verite with the kids in the rec center, the kids doing their vandalism. And That's what's really amazing about that film. It's masterfully done. It's high-level filmmaking. And by the way, so is River's Edge. I mean, River's Edge is an incredible movie that once you see it, you never forget it. And and it's also a great movie if you just want to track the unraveling of America and you want to go from over the edge and then jump forward, what is it, six, seven years to uh, River's Edge um, and you just see the progression of where the country is headed through the lens of this uh, these snapshots of our youth, uh, both involving uh, Tim Hunter. Yeah. Um, and then I would throw another Tim Hunter. I, I don't know how the movies that made me has become very Tim Hunter centric, but I would throw another movie in there, Tex, um, sure. which is one of the S.E. Hinton adaptations. And personally, I actually love um, Rumble Fish, I think is an underrated movie, but I Tex is my favorite. And once again, it's just got that very nuanced, real gritty kind of feeling to it. Um, And uh, all a long-winded way of saying uh, the movies that made me, I love Tim Hunter. Yeah, that was amazing. (laughs) I
0: wonder, is he the one, God, it's been so long since I've seen it, but I feel like I remember it for a million years. There's a line in uh, River's Edge. I think it's Keanu. Does he live, he's got like a stepfather. Yep, yeah. And is, is it the line, you come into my house, you fuck my mother, you eat my food, motherfucker, food eater.
1: (laughs) That's it. That's it. That's like a line
0: you never forget.
1: (laughs) And he's got the kid brother who hangs out with the other kid who does the nunchucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you realize (sighs) the younger kid's even nastier than they. Mm -hmm. You realize it's getting worse. Whatever darkness is approaching is getting darker and darker. Yes. God damn, that movie. And, and, you know, the story on that movie is it's written by a UCLA uh, film student, Neil Jimenez. Who was in oh. school at UCLA when he wrote it? And then I think there's a bit of a tragedy. I think Neil Aminis was in a car accident. It might have been confined to a wheelchair. I can't remember the exact story around that. But but what's the 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 great part of it is he wrote this amazing script that Tim Hunter found and it it got made and it's uh, it's yeah. a movie that still is around today that people watch and talk about. An incredible film. And by the way, that movie also blends a haunting. Orchestral score with hardcore, mm. in that case, like speed metal. But there's a really haunting central uh, score theme to that. I can't remember who did the uh, the scoring for that, but uh, yeah, yeah, very cool
0: movie. And all these films, um, actually, I can't, I can't remember. If, I don't think Text does this, but so far, most of the films, at least, you walk out with a really queasy feeling for the world that's
2: yeah. coming. Well, Text was actually a Disney movie. So yeah. that—that's I, yeah, I, I actually—I be... actually helped uh, on the editing of that picture.
1: Come on, are you serious? Yeah. yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah. You know, but that's text... when I found. That's where I found the, the the woman who plays the mother in Gremlins because she was the um, she was the teacher. That's right, Frances oh Lee McCain. And I, and I was and when you're, when you you edit an actor's performance, you really
3: mm. get
2: to appreciate what they do because you know you're yeah. not using it all, but you're seeing it all, and you're seeing the changes and, you know the 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 gradations of what they do, and uh, so when, it, when it came time to um, cast this part, we saw a lot of people who had you know were pretty big names. But then I said, you know, I think she's bringing this lady. She's really very down to earth, and she was
1: great. That movie's darker though than most Disney movies, and it's certainly darker. Although I guess some of the other S.E. Hintons ones had a dark edge to it. But yeah. the ending does have a little happy ending bow, as Joe knows better than I do because you're involved in the editing. But before that, it's a very like loose, frightening narrative where this kid doesn't Matt Dylan doesn't have parents. His older brother is trying to raise him, who's like a basketball star, but can't be a basketball star. And it, and it, yet you can also see all their sexualities starting to uh, wake up in the movie. And it feels very unhinged. And it feels like the whole feeling of the movie is there are no parents around. That's kind of the way it feels. And and once again, Tim Hunter is so brilliant. It's done very real Very idiosyncratic, it's not shot glossy, and it just has a a nice edge to it. But yeah, there's a little happy bow at the end, um, without a doubt, because it is a Disney movie. But I I recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it.
0: This is a perfect place to take a break and give you a word from our sponsor because uh, MoviesUnlimited.com, the experts on movies, have been around since 1978, one year longer than Over the Edge, which you can find on DVD at moviesunlimited.com.
2: Buy your favorites at moviesunlimited.com. You'll find classics, imports, hard to find films, and of course new releases too. The prices are great and the choices are endless. Own the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features you just don't get elsewhere at any time you want in your own home. Click the Movies Unlimited banner on our website and buy your favorites from hard to find films, imports, and more. Go now to moviesunlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50.
4: Support our sponsors and be good to yourself. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
1: I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana.
4: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: So I'm going to back up and I'm going to go I'm going to go back to that time, which we all know and love when you're the kid, when you're nine years old, 12 years old, 17, whatever it is. And the movie for me, because I I feel like movies can do a lot of different things. I mean, I always say, you know, people have been asking me about Don't Look Up. Like, oh, climate, you did the climate storytelling. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to see 300 other stories. You can tell these stories from so many different angles and with so many different tones. So a movie for me that sort of injected me with the magic of film, the transportive feeling of film in a way that I've never forgotten was The Man Who Would Be King. And I saw The Man Who Would Be King with my dad. And I have never forgotten that feeling of leaving that movie theater. You know, that great feeling where the sun hits you in the eyes when you exit the theater. And it's that feeling of like, when I walked into the movie theater, I was a slightly different person than I am now. I now see the world just a little bit differently. And to me, there are a lot of movies that have done that to me, which is why I love movies, but the man who would be king was just like my, I, my mind was far away. My imagination went far away. I'd walked in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and the mountains of, you know, Afghanistan and Turkmenistan. I, I'd been in the middle of, uh, you know, Mumbai, uh, I'd hung out with Rudyard Kipling. I'd seen, you know, a, a beautiful, uh, uh, Afghani princess, you know, bite Sean Connery. Oh, Every every of them marching through the the uh, what what mountains the Himalayas right um, and uh, through the snowstorm and seeing the statues and the difference like in the distance every image of that movie I just I, I would just say for being transported by a movie that movie got me uh, in, in a way that I'll just never ever forget. Yeah, I, I just I think it's like the most perfect adventure movie. And, you know, I don't know how it holds up under a 2022 spotlight. I'm guessing some of the depictions, I mean, because it's really at the root of it, it's about colonialism. And there's portraits of India that are very like, British, you know, uh, centric. So it's probably problematic.
0: It's always owned. I mean, I think it would be to a surface viewing, but it has always owned the sort of underlying awfulness of the character's perception
1: of of the world they're in. You know, they- I think you're right. I think you're right because it doesn't, I don't want to give it away for anyone who hasn't seen it. it. It doesn't go well for them. No,
0: but it makes very dark jokes out of their extreme racism and and sort of inherent sense of superiority.
1: Yeah, uh, you're right. As as an analogy for colonialism, it actually would hold up pretty well under a 2022. uh, It's uh, it's, it's not endorsing it, is the uh, the important No, 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 no. None (laughs) of it goes well. And all the ways it goes wrong are kind of the ways that colonialism was a disaster. Anyway. Yeah. So that's a big one. You guys know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Like those. Can we did like the perfect
0: casting of all time? Is there anybody better than those two? Oh,
1: the best. Uh, So the other one, um, which it's not the most obscure choice, but I just gotta once again. Your show is the movies that made me. Right. Yeah. And I'll never forget seeing this movie. And after I saw this movie, I saw it on VHS when the video stores were first you know, popping up, there's probably around 86, I want to say, 87, maybe, maybe 87. And uh, I watched the movie at night. And the next morning I got up and I had to put it on again because I couldn't believe I had just, I, did, I thought there's no way I just saw a movie that was like this, that had to be a dream. And it was Blue Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> and, on video. And uh, the part where He he lip syncs Candy Colored Clown with the Klieg light and and about 50 other moments in that movie just spun my head in a way that once again, I I didn't know you could do that in a movie. By the way, here's another thing with Lynch. People forget, Lynch is funny as shit. He's laugh out loud funny. So I was laughing at this movie. I was disturbed. My mind was being bent. It looks gorgeous. Um, and then ever since then, I've seen every single thing Lynch has done. A, he's one of my all time heroes. And um, that's a big one. That's, that's another one that might go in the uh, network zone of uh, let's build a, a municipal monument to this movie.
2: Uh, yes. Well, it's, it's certainly difficult to look at a well manicured lawn without thinking about what's underneath
0: it. <laughs> I've always. A- felt like there's just something, and I wonder I, I wonder if you could even ask him this if he'd answer straight, because he, he doesn't strike me as a person who's going to just lay out his creative vision and ideas. But I always felt, and I think it's one of the things that makes it great to me, is that movie is David Lynch trying to make a quote-unquote normal Hollywood film.
1: Well, it's so funny you say that, because I remember, you know, we've worked with Paul Thomas Anderson a few times. He was actually the original producer on Anchorman, believe yeah. it or not. And, uh, and then David O. Russell came on as a producer. That, that's some good film trivia. David O. Russell is a producer on Anchorman. But anyway, Paul Thomas Anderson loves Saturday Night Live. So he came and guest wrote, and I got to be friends with him. And I remember him talking about Punch Drunk Love, because I love Punch Drunk Love. Love it, <laughs> love it, love it. And it was funny hearing Paul Thomas Anderson saying it, because he was like, he told me, he's like, we were trying to do, a, I was trying to do a big commercial hit. He said, I cast Adam Sandler because I was gonna do a big commercial hit. And he's kind of laughing, I mean, obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson's a you know, genius and, and amazing, so I'm not telling on him when I tell this story, but I just yeah. laughed and it's like, oh yeah, you. you when you're Paul Thomas Anderson, you're always Paul Thomas Anderson. Right. You can't flick a light switch on it. So he ended up making Punch Drunk Love. And, and that's a really good question about Lynch, because people forget that Lynch had a window where he was a big Hollywood director, which is hard to imagine. But the movie, of course, is Dune. And yeah. The Elephant Man was Oscar, huge, yeah. like big uh, awards film.
0: But well, like, Blue Velvet was like his comeback was kind of after the, the failure of, of Dune. So.
1: Wow. Isn't that hard yeah. to believe? Yeah. Uh, by the way, I still love the Lynch Dune. I'm one of like nine people on planet Earth that still, uh, I think the new one's terrific and, and Denis amazing, but uh, I still love that one. Oh. I, it,
0: it, the, the, I agree with you about the new one, but it made me yearn for Lynch's.
1: I just kind think the that, art design, the, yeah. the look, the bold choices, is it flawed? Of course it is. But, oh, I just could drink in every frame of that. And I love the whisper thing that he does for the internal dots. I thought it totally yes. worked. Surprised more people haven't haven't stolen that. Um, but anyway, Blue Velvet, big, yeah. looming shadow, huge thing for have, all have of Have you us. ever
0: watched, um, it was a revelation, that they came out with the Blu-ray a couple of years ago, and for the first time ever, I think we've talked about this, Joe. It's got about an hour of uh, deleted scenes, outtakes, stuff like that, which he's never put out on anything.
1: Oh my God. I got to see this.
0: What's amazing. And I found it so heartening is that first of all, he didn't throw away as far as I can tell from this, a single frame of Dennis Hopper because Dennis Hopper's not in any of this (laughs) stuff. And second, everything that's in these outtakes is awful. I mean, just awful. And you realize, and it just like, it makes him seem to me even more of an artist. Cause I'm always thinking like this genius, he goes off and he writes these incredible scripts and he makes these incredible films and you're like, oh wow, this guy found the movie in the editing. Wow. Like he's I capable, can't... he's capable of actually writing and then filming a scene so much worse than anything I've ever written in my life, which, you know, but it doesn't end up in a movie. But I was just like, oh, thank Did God! Do
1: you feel it's... that way? I felt that way with Apocalypse Now Redux, where this yes. they cut every mm-hmm. yeah. one of them should have been cut. Should have yeah. been. And cut. By the way, yep. I mean, it's Francis Ford Coppola; they look yeah. gorgeous. They're executed really well, but like, I mean, the one with the French family, or or the Playboy bunny having sex with him in the truck—like, those were yeah. just outright like misfires. But um, yeah. Anyway, it's I, that I, I realization
0: guess. that they can be as awful and depressingly devoid (laughs) of talent as I can be on my worst day. And it just, it makes you think that like, you know, the, the, the greatness within them can also be achieved, even if you're as bad as, you know, it's, it's amazing. All right. So here's
1: a, here's another big one. And this might sprawl into just an appreciation for the filmmaker, but I mean, I just can't express to you how big this movie was for my circle of friends and I when it came out. I think I've seen the movie. I mean, this is pathetic, because once again, VHS had just broken.
4: and Or the the
1: VCRs had just become affordable, I should say, right. it was out before. It. So this is around the 80s, and we were able to get a couple copies of movies we loved through friends that had duped them. Because remember when you would buy the original VHS, it would cost like $180 or something. Um, Repo Man was just yes. kaboom, kablowy, like... The music, the lines, the comedy, the Alex Cox was like my, you know, that he was like my patron saint in the '80s. We were obsessed with Repo Man. We were that was we were that kind of first generation that was really starting to like repeat lines from movies, watch them over and over again, and then Sid and Nancy came out, and that was another one. So Nancy, we devoured, and we were massive Alex Cox fans. I got to work with him on a project a couple of years ago that we were developing. Unfortunately, we couldn't get it to land. Awesome guy, lovely guy, um, but I mean, Repo Man, just that that yeah. L.A. punk scene, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, uh, just you know, intense. Repo Man is always intense. Normal people, I fucking hate them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I installed some, what was it? I installed a hot tub in John Wayne's house and he answered the door in a dress. Um, Just don't but, say the first part of that scene. <laughs> yes. No, no, I will not. Um, but Holy shit. That was, yeah. that was one of those ones, you know, where you're like, oh my God, there's people out there that are joking like this, thinking like this, the world feels less small all of a sudden, we were buying all that music. The Circle Jerks, you know. Uh, yeah. All of a sudden, we were the Repo Man theme with Steve Jones playing guitar. It's a great theme song too for that, and yes. just linked us into a bunch of music. City and all that. Oh, yeah. oh, beautiful. yeah. We we
0: we had Alex on the show very early on, we're just starting out, and he was he was I think everything you would have uh, hoped
1: him to be. He's such the, a cool guy. Yeah, and then I would say his other movies too, like. Sid and Nancy was big, man. I mean, that just opened us up to a whole different kind of filmmaking and point of view and and uh, Highway Patrolman. Highway Patrolman, and, yeah. Yeah, really good movie. Yep. Um, so anyway, that's a big one. Um, yeah. And then the other one, once again, I, I, it's more fun when I can say ones that are slightly obscure, uh, but sometimes that's not how it works. When, uh, So I worked at a movie theater called Eric Twin Frazier, After my freshman year of college, I went to Penn State my freshman year, uh, which was a big football uh, frat house kind of school. And uh, fortunately I did the comedy radio station, but otherwise it wasn't the best fit for what I wanted to do. So then I transferred to Temple for my sophomore year. But after my freshman year, before I went into Philly where I worked at the Ritz Five, I worked at this little mangy theater out off Route 30 called Eric Twin Frazier.
0: I I worked at an Eric on 15th and Chestnut.
1: Come on, really? (laughs) Oh my God, I love it. And (laughs) and the movies were for the most part that we, and I got all my friends to get a job there and we all worked there for a summer and it was one of the funnest summers I've ever had in my life. Never eat the popcorn. Uh, popcorn was horrendous. We learned that like, pretty quickly. They kept it downstairs in bags, right? Yep, yep. It was like popped like a year before. It was popped <laughs> And you magnitude. had to check
0: for holes before you brought it up. Oh, to make it was horrendous. horrendous.
1: It had a weird color to it. Uh, but most of the movies we had were not great movies, but we had one movie that played most of the summer that we loved. And we must, I, I think by the time it left the theater, I could say every line of dialogue in the movie, uh, Tin Men, by Barry oh, oh, wow. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and then of course we went and dug out diner. And so diner and tin men were big for us because it was about those lines, those little moments. And we would just repeat the lines over and over and over again, you know, uh, see, you're doing it. You're selling me. I told you I don't want to be sold and you're doing it. You're selling me. Uh, I can say every line in the movie Ten Men. I met Barry Levinson, and I looked like a crazed stalker. Uh, I came <laughs> off like a crazed stalker, um, and I learned a lot from those movies. The specificity is incredible—specificity of time and place, accents, yeah, accents. Oh my accents. god, the, the Baltimore accent, which yeah, the Baltimore from is almost like a
0: Philly and. Richard Dreyfuss nailed it. I was amazed because he's a oh, California kid. Like Danny it, DeVito, of course, is.
1: could do it, but it, it totally. Yeah, you're always a dreamer, eh, books? Well, <laughs> you don't got dreams, you got nightmares. I mean, I, I can I can do the, both those movies. I can do every single line. So, um, and once again, those were movies that just made us feel like the world was bigger because, you know, especially with Diner. And and a lot with Tin Men too, because even though they're more grown up in Tin Men, they're still like big 19 year olds. Um, You know, he really portrayed hanging out in a way that I just never seen in a film because that's all my friends and I were doing. And we were going to diners out off Route 30. We were going to the diner in Phoenixville. We were going to one off Route 30 and staying up late and just shooting the shit. Um, Yeah, big movies, big movies.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. The um, God. Yeah. I love those. Films. Every one of his Baltimore films works, which is amazing. Amazing. You know, amazing. Um, like anyone who's had made that many films, he can be hit or miss. But uh, anytime he goes back to Baltimore, it's just, what, what is it about? I mean, you, you, you live Baltimore adjacent, at least as did I. And I've always felt like how they, 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 they got him. They got David Simon, got they, John got, Waters. they got John Waters. It's like they got these incredible, you know, cinematic and television artists. It's
1: so true. Yeah, I mean, you look at Baltimore, though, it is a root major chord of the American story. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, with the port, with how much it was booming, the Colts, Bart Starr, the whole Americana of it, uh, and then what happened to the city, obviously, is Simon chronicled so i mean yeah. philly's got that too um it's an amazing documentary whenever anyone wants to understand philly i always tell them i go watch uh let the fire burn Ugh. about the move uh episode um where they burned down an entire section of new york city the police oh. chief dropped a bomb our entire section oh. of philadelphia what did i say new york oh everyone she- does that Oh God, that's well, as but a you're Philly a native guy, son. As it? a Philly guy, that's just shameful. <laughs> uh, maybe because I'm thinking of the Attica documentary, which someone was just telling me I got to watch. But anyway, um, yeah, but that's an amazing doc,
0: though. because It's all yeah, found footage
1: or you know existing footage from the era. Let the fire burn is well worth watching. It was all the the court ceiling sealed footage was released under the a news
0: f- footage of the
1: yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. incredible.
0: Imagine, um, I'm working on a move project right now. I've been for because I lived one block away from them for the first shootout. So. Are
1: you serious? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, amazing. I could see the fires from my uh, fifth grade school, from the playground of my fifth grade school, Charleston Elementary. We were about uh, 35 minutes, 40 minutes outside Philly. Yeah. See the fires on the skyline. That's amazing. The story has kind of been swept under the rug from American history, but um, people don't know it. No. Um, all right. So here's another one. So I, I come from a background in uh, Chicago of doing, um, you know, Del Close improv theater, uh, DIY kind of theater. And a big part of that was story theater from the 60s, Paul Sills. And a lot of that was like, you're allowed to narrate your own scenes, do monologues in the middle of them. So i had done a lot of theater with that. But until I saw this movie, I'm going to jump way ahead. Till I had seen this movie, I didn't know... I, and and Mr. Dante, your your films and the way you play with storytelling are part of this as well. But until I saw 24-Hour Party People by Michael Winterbottom, mm. I didn't know you could do it like that. And I remember seeing it over in Santa Monica, what was know, 12, 14, 15 years ago when it came out. And that was another one of those ones where I left the theater and I was like a dog that had heard a new sound where my head cocked. And... Uh, and because of that, when I read the big short, I knew exactly how to do it. I, I just right away was like, I know how to do this. So I've given Winterbottom credit all over the place uh, just for like, dude, thank you for making that movie. It, it, the way he did it in that, with that sense of playfulness and just fluidity and, and the look of the film, it was just a massive influence on me. Um, so yeah, I would put that one pretty high.
0: Yeah, that kind of stream of consciousness, as you say, the, the breaking the fourth wall stuff that both
1: of you guys love. Um,
0: I do too, I guess, but that you've both done a lot of. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing film. I, I just went back and watched it again
1: recently and just, just boggled by it. Right now I'm forgetting my list. I don't have my list. Do you have it?
0: Uh-oh, uh-oh, wait a
1: minute, wait a minute. Well, it's not a problem. I could talk <laughs> movies for 70 straight hours. I think, I think we hit them um, but we hit a lot, we hit a lot. Uh, let yes. me end with one last big one. Um, okay. All right. Let's, I want to, I God, man, it's fun talking about that early experience that, I mean, honestly, I could say some. I mean, Gremlins, I remember seeing that in a theater and just, I mean, that's, I mean, there's movies like, that I'm not even going to do like Jaws and Goodfellas and stuff. We all know those are like cast big shadows over everything and you just devour them, but I'm going to go. Oh, oh, I got a good one. All right. All right. Here's one. All right. So when I was, you know, when we were younger, once again, I'm going to do the when we were younger, we only had four TV channels. Everyone out there has heard every guy over the age of, you know, every man or woman over the age of 45 say this, but we only had four TV channels, the three networks. 10, 12. Yeah. And you had the public station. And then you have this weird dial on your TV oh, that they called UHF. And I can't, what, what did UHF
2: stand for? Either of you guys. Ultra know? high frequency. There we go. Joe knows ultra Which is high. Because fre-
0: you would think if they were ultra high, they'd be easier to
2: get than Yeah, no, it was always snowy and always snowy.
0: 1729 was- and 48, right, Adam?
1: Uh, very good. <coughs> yes. So, so ultra-high frequency channel, you would turn and it would make this grindy sound because there were so many weird channels on it. <laughs> and everything had hash and snow in it. And they would play like 1950s horror films and weird movies and weird local stuff. And there was a movie that used to play on UHF when I grew up in Philly, that because they played it all the time, I saw it 15 times. And it was called Cooley High yes. with Glenn Terman. Oh. And it is such a, oh, nice. You just uh, you just pour, yes. started to pour. Word word out. Out. The brothers who are not with us. For the brothers who are not with us. And <laughs> it is a marvelous Great little slice of life, Detroit, Cooley High, uh, a story of a screenwriter who's trying to get out of a really tough, scary neighborhood. His group of friends, the woman he's in love with, that Motown soundtrack before the Motown sound got squeezed dry by 70 other movies and got played to death on the radio. And it's just a, a, a little gem I never hear talked about anymore. And once again, you know, we didn't have movie theaters everywhere. We didn't have Blu-ray. We didn't have streaming, all that kind of stuff. So when you would bump into a really great, special little movie like that, it it just meant a lot. And it started getting me to think about like, well, who did this? Oh, it's the story of a guy from a rough neighborhood. And then I later learned it's a true story. The guy who wrote it really didn't get out of that neighborhood. And, And suddenly I'm in the crappy section of Malvern and thinking, oh, you can actually do this. And, and um, yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll end with a very tiny little gem, uh, Cooley High. But I think as much as anything from Philly, the road I came up, um, you know, uh, it's kind of a perfect one in a way. And the filmmaking's good. It's great cinematography got a good look to it very authentic i love those movies like brother from another planet is another one in in the days where you didn't have to get the releases from the background people right and you would see them <laughs> look at the camera and i kind of like i've told extras before you can tag the camera because i kind of like that um <laughs> <laughs> yes. but uh anyway yeah i will end on cooley High.
0: Yeah, no, that's a fantastic one. And, um, Adam, I mean, this was such a pleasure, man. I've been to get you in here for a while. I knew you'd be a great guest. And,
2: uh, So you um, just decided to wait until he's got his biggest hit. And then yeah. When he <laughs> really doesn't need the help at all. He thought
0: that's, uh, give, it, give it to him there. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> yeah.
1: Well, um, I love you guys. Uh, I'm such a fan. I already fanboyed out for Mr. Dante, but, uh, a uh, big fan of yours as well, Mr. Olson. And oh, thank, thank you sir. for having me. Well, we'll me, be uh, looking
2: forward to we, to what you're
1: doing next. Yes, we got a couple things in the pipeline. We got our production companies got uh, this Lakers show, Winning Time, coming out in March, which Great. is very cool. I, I directed the pilot for that. I'm an EP on it, and then we have uh, a couple docu series coming out. We have a horror film that's about to premiere at Sundance that we produce called Fresh. Uh, directed by Mimi Cave, who is wickedly talented, written by Lauren Kahn. Keep an eye for that. That is a, a horror film like like uh, none I've ever been involved in. And uh and we have another movie we just wrapped principal photography on called The Menu with uh, Anya Teller Joy and Ray Fines in it. Uh that's in the edit room right now. So we got a bunch of stuff coming up. Wow, well that's right.
0: right that you directed or no, no, no. Oh, you produced, produced. Okay.
1: We produced. That's Mark Mylod, who uh, obviously I know through Succession, did a fabulous right. job and uh, a great, great script. I'm so excited about that one. So yeah. a bunch of different things come.
4: Yes. Great.
0: Well, uh, congratulations on everything. And um, uh, I guess well, I've already voted for you guys in the WGA Awards. I'm looking <laughs> okay. forward to the uh, the Academy. Uh,
1: Love it. Love it. it. But um, All right, anyway, gents.
0: thank you so much. I appreciate well, thanks, it. Thanks,
1: guys. Such a pleasure. Great to meet you.
3: I never broke into a car, never hot-wired a car, kid. I never broke into a trunk. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle, nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people, I hate them. (sighs) Me too. What do you know? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Let's go get a drink.
0: Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of trailersfromhell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Me. Stay safe out there,
1: folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.